You're listening to Sound and Process, Episode 6. I'm Dan Dirks. Thank you so much for joining me. Sound and Process is an exploration of the Artists of Lines, a forum for Eurorack module and instrument maker Mono. This episode was made possible by generous donations through Patreon and with special individual contributions by Joris Berkoven, Brian Grabtree, Joshua Sadler, and Sandy Brain. To directly support Sound and Process and receive early access to new conversations, behind-the-scene notes, and tapes of new episodes, please consider contributing through patreon.com slash soundandprocess. We've got a great episode out of us. My guest is Peter Shahalski, a Polish-born artist who creates multimedia works under the name Labor Camp. His early pieces, large-scale internet installations which defy the constraints of late 90s technology, captured the attention of the New York Times, MTV, and the National Endowment of the Arts. Peter began composing music with Max MSP and modular synths, eventually merging his talents for both visual and aural art to create immersive performance environments. Peter is also a visual arts professor at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design where he collaborates with students past and present. Most notable are his recent projects with Pramila Vasudevan's multidisciplinary group, Anisha Arts. To begin, I asked Peter when art first became a passion for him. I honestly do not have a a clear moment where I could say, oh, this is really what I want to do. Part of it, I think, is that I grew up side by side my older brother, and I absorbed a lot of cultural uh, material, or ex- was exposed to a lot of you know very diverse visual sonic um, ideas, sort of through him. And I mm. think there wasn't really a point; it was just a, a kind of a embracing of that sort of exposure and having it become my own world in some ways. Okay. Recently, um, and by, by that I mean, you know, number of years recently, since I've been working more in a more focused way with sound, I've been thinking a lot about stuff that happened for me sonically in those uh, back in Poland. And I do remember we had this um, reel-to-reel tape recorder that was able to record um, two tracks independently. And then, you know, I had the ability of playing back the two tracks simultaneously. And I... I do remember very distinctly spending hours just messing around with the uh, with the layerings of the of the of the two tracks. So I am sure, in terms of like my passion or interest in sound, this, these were like the absolute beginning formative years. Well, when did the development of your skills become intentional? Then it's largely connected to just somebody um, remarking or saying something thoughtful in a way that for me was a signal that I was able to, I don't know, intentionally or not, connect with that person. And I guess uh, all the way through, say, high school years or whatever, I, uh, I, I definitely thought that this was the kind of thing that I was going to be able to do. And I'll say one more thing about my brother, uh, in that I think he also intended initially to uh, pursue art school, but as a first son, I believe my parents were a little more focused on him having a more uh, realistic career. And he ended up being an architect. Um, By the time it was my turn to go to school, I think they just didn't care uh, that much. (laughs) Or were able to simply say, okay, this is what you want to do. This is what you'll do. And uh, So I was very fortunate in that regard that that these things were simply never questions. This was what I was going to do. And that's how it played out through all my schooling years back in Poland. Where did you go to school in Poland? I did all my schooling in the um, Fine Arts Academy in uh, Poznan, which was kind of an amazing place in the sense that my experience ranged from my interest and passion in poster design all the way to being able to work with um, professors and artists who uh, exposed me to a different type of thinking about art much more rooted in conceptual tradition and appreciation of 
the sort of intellectual dimension of art experience, not just uh, kind of cultivation of skills or form making, etc., etc. So that range of interests from a very graphic language to a very multidisciplinary set of interests that set the path for me for the rest of my life. I, I, I still look at the work that I do today and I can see distinctly how it straddles those uh, that spectrum in a kind of continuous and, to me, fairly effortless way, meaning that I think, I can think as a, as a designer, <laughs> at the same time I can uh, think as, a, as an artist or, or um, I don't know, photographer. Your early life was much more rooted in, in visual art then. Yeah, I would say definitely. It was uh, was definitely about um, visual work, although at the time when the move to U.S. became a uh, reality, I was definitely more confident and interested in working with installation format and a work that was a little more interdisciplinary than, you know, kind of traditionally slotted in particular uh, media silos, so... I was um, very active in the mail art scene, um, utilizing post offices, uh, postal services as medium. Mm. And there was a sense of uh, networking that emerged from that experience for me. This is from back in Poland, and I was able to stay in, in touch with a lot of artists around the world. Um, uh, and I'm, I bring this up because for two reasons. One is that this was a direct sort of link and reason why my move to U.S. happened, but also because my interest in this sort of decentralized or networked set of relationships was something that very easily became my interest in internet in the sort of mid-90s where the technology made this possible. So this idea of actually communicating in these outer layers or outside of the traditional art institution channels was definitely something that was a big part of my experience back in Poland and then kind of naturally uh, led to pursuing internet as a equally fascinating networked ability to communicate with people directly. Unpacking a little bit of your early works, starting with the spleen. There's this section called the chest piece, right? which documents a visit back to Poland that you had made after being in the States and this kind of reverse culture shock almost. I, I mean, like I've, this sounds, sounds strange to say this, but I've literally forgotten that I, that I did that. You know, <laughs> Spleen was a, a kind of a framework or a container for my my early sort of experiments with working with internet as a medium and so i've done a lot of things and the the, the specifically the piece you're describing is literally one of the very very first things i've done is this, i i have no idea how have you seen this online like were you able to actually see this now well that's the funny thing too about all of it is you made it all for like netscape yes with such specific window and font recommendations yeah that some of it is very very broken but th th a lot of it is intact <laughs> and you know it's just little broken image links uh, every so often but at the very least chess piece is there in its entirety Okay, this literally, this really blows my mind because for a number of reasons. The spleen had died a long time ago and I refused to fix things because, you know, sure. I, I'm, I'm doing new work. I just, I want to say that I don't care, but it's, I do care, of course, you know, like this is my work. And it's, it's kind of amazing because I really have very little to show for, you know, more than a decade of my work like really hard work too because this was like learning this new language you know learning how to think in in very different terms and in the end i just have some screen grabs you know if i did that and some clunky videos of people interacting with things on the screen and so when you say this when you invoke the chest piece 
I'm I'm thinking I wonder what you've seen because I have no idea what what worked what didn't work some links that might have been like setting up particular sequence of events might not be work I would imagine they're not working I, I, What's incredible about revisiting it there's two things for me one was it seemed like that project should have never been possible hmm. given the the time that you did I mean you did this in 1997 I mean the the I remember what internet access was like, you know, I'm like, uh, uh, it's remarkable to have pulled it off in a pre high speed internet age. Um, so I'd love to get your perspective on that. And then also too, I think there's something beautiful about the idea that these digital projects are slowly crumbling just because of the way that the internet is moving ahead and evolving. And if you're not keeping those up, then these little pieces uh, just decompose. Yeah, it was actually kind of amazing to be able to do work in those early days on the internet because there was a sense of exhilaration and the idea of literally charting, like hacking your way through this no man's land or or something just uh, it was a it was a very strange and and kind of beautiful experience and and there's definitely a quality and a value in that for me just personally as a as having had that uh, opportunity one of my favorite absolutely favorite stories about spleen is I was very much thinking of internet as this sort of uh, body and whatever I was able to put out was going to be housed in this organ that is seemingly unnecessary in the human body. And I kind of love that metaphor. And and I thought that this place that I was setting up, that I was going to populate with my work, that you know may or may not be necessary for the functioning of the rest of the body. And so that was my kind of like artistic uh, license there. And so I set it up with my work being the inward vessels and outward vessels were like the links to resources outside etc etc so information is sort of flowing through this metaphorical organ and it's funny to think about the decomposition and how it ended up sort of dying out slowly uh, in a very organic way where parts of it would just fall apart or stop working so i like that a lot um, in the early days, I set up uh, this feedback s- system. This is funny because it was like a premonition of the social media. Where you post a picture and people just comment on it. And so I set up this very crude feedback system where people can post their comments and I would be you know, emailing them back directly or whatever. And it was interesting. I was very much... Uh, influenced by these conversations I had with people who, you know, would see something I posted one day and then uh, they would send some feedback. I would do a next thing next day and kind of a, it really became a sort of a conversation, which was definitely a new kind of quality to understand that the medium can carry that component within its sort of essential uh, properties. So, I set up this feedback scenario and I was checking it religiously, like daily, multiple times every day at first. And uh, maybe two, three years into it, and uh, my interest sort of uh, moved maybe into working on more, um, well, trying to move away from the this crude limitations of having to compress everything so badly that, you know, so it can be downloaded. But somebody sent me an email and said, hey, Peter, have you been checking with that feedback thing on the spleen? I'm like, no, I can't say that I have. And I looked back, and what happened is the first thing I saw was a message that somebody posted saying things like, oh, I had my spleen removed, you know, six years ago, but I, I'm i doing good, you know, a little bit nauseous here and there. And, and next comment would be, I have two spleens, and, uh, you know, I doctor told me that I don't have to do anything about it. And then the next comment was like, yeah, I lost my spleen in a freak horse accident or something. It, it, was, it had nothing to do with my work. That's wild. There were hundreds of posts of people who had actual spleen problems, right? <laughs> so this community somehow built itself uh, in a we- weird, like, parasitic way around my... <laughs> Not even around, like actually inside my artwork. I mean, it's just fascinating for me because uh, it was not something that I could have anticipated. But I love it. I think this is like the best thing that emerged from the spleen uh, for me. Just the fact that people can basically 
inhabit and take ownership of an artwork and use it basically, you know, to help themselves somehow. It's like a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. I just love the idea that somehow in my ostensibly immaterial artwork, people made home for themselves, caring for their bodies. It was just, I literally have chills just thinking about it because it's, uh, it's like an ideal. I, I, I think I, I would say that um, I wouldn't know how to go about this if I tried how to, how to create that kind of situation. But it's definitely, it would, be, it would have to be one of my goals, really, in, as an artist, how to create a, a kind of a environment that people can truly take ownership of to some sort of positive ends. Those stories seem to echo a core value of uh, the labor camp project, which is anyone who's interfacing with your art generates their own experience. Mm. And as you're building something that balances both politics and an aesthetic, how do you deal with the idea of keeping it open enough so that the audience can create their own experience, but having it pointed enough that it says the thing that you want it to say. Yeah, you're you're touching on one of the sort of more important aspects of the, or like a conundrum in this whole process. Um, it's just recently I've the this whole um, banner uh, experience, the, all the printing that I've been doing in the in the last year or so. Uh, I do get a lot of questions about uh, people you know, ask questions about political art and this and that. And I, you know, I'm very quick to uh, dismantle this idea because I really just don't subscribe to this notion of political art at all because uh, I do think that it's all, in a sense, political. Like, uh, the to make art is a political gesture, right? If you want to think of it in terms of uh, politics. But... I think of it more in sort of social uh, terms. I think of it in ecological terms, in the way that we uh, affect, live and affect each other. Um, I think of those dynamics and those connections, and I care about what happens within that uh, within that paradigm. And as an artist, I feel like there is a sense of responsibility that I have to take ownership of. Uh, the second I embrace that kind of thinking and whether or not that's, you know, political, um, I don't know. But I do know that the word politics and political carry that those words carry this unfortunate uh, um kind of blunt uh, uh, set of implications and people instantly think of things in very black and white terms, I feel. And so as an artist, I, I, I definitely think that it, part of the objective is to create uh, or to speak with the language that leans towards uh, kind of a quiet complexity, maybe. Uh, something that uh, in very intentionally avoids that uh, crudeness of of the you know the ideas that people uh have sort of internalized over time and tend to apply to things that overtly uh seem to connect to these um ways of speaking the ways of communicating one of my absolutely uh, early fascinations with the internet was that I, I had this image in my mind of kind of a physical closeness of this other person on the other side of the screen. Because I was very aware of the fact that we were about, you know, a foot, maybe two feet away from the screen, both of us. And I, mm. I always felt that I was actually working towards that person on the other side of the screen. But the internet was able to facilitate that experience, you know, multiplied hundreds or maybe thousands of times and that was just an amazing kind of uh, a realization i held on to it very much 
even uh, when I was moving away from internet specifically as a medium. And maybe it was one of those reasons why sound became such a point of attraction for me, because I was thinking about sound operating in a very similar way as a, again, very immaterial uh, medium where the information is sort of reaching the other person on a very visceral level. So yeah, the, the interest in sound sort of crept up through or maybe from my early work on the internet. And somewhere around that time, I also collected icons, like a Mac operating system icons, because I thought they were interesting, tiny, tiny artworks. Mm. So I, I wrote the software that would read the pixel values, the color pixel values of an icon from top to bottom, left to right, just one by one, and remap them directly into MIDI note values, right? Uh, because these icons were often, you know, designed pixel by pixel by somebody creating these very uh, sort of lovely sequences of colors, they actually sounded pretty musical. And I was shocked, honestly, when the when I was done with this project, the, the sounds that, or the compositions actually, that were coming out of these icons, you know, were, were just really quite convincing. And I was also able to, you know, as, once I had this as a sequence of MIDI notes, I can print sheet music um, also. And so technically somebody could, you know, string quartet could perform this uh, this file folder icon. What it did for me is that it basically convinced me as an artist that I can actually work with sound as a medium, even though I've never had any formal uh, musical training. So so there was a, a kind of a different approach to working with sound, paying attention to that immateriality, the kind of entering that medium as a visual artist or artist with different set of considerations, not necessarily the sort of musical mastery that comes with the years of practice uh, mm. and the kind of uh, reality of working with internet and screen-based media uh, essentially a multimedia environment where you couldn't just ignore sound sound was an important part of the multimedia framework and so as an artist who felt it important to be shaping actively all the media assets i started working with sound and then slowly the sound sort of began to dominate my interest and then the visual things were sort of supporting the sound work and then in the end some of the sound just lives on its own mm. so between the 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 icon sound project and theater of operation there's a span of number of years where i've done all kinds of uh, sound experiments and works that involved some form of text because that was the sort of uh, um, sensibility that came from working with the spaces that were shared by media. So in this case, I was looking at text and sound and thinking of the, you know, song as a as an idea format, et cetera, et cetera. You know, also just experimenting a lot with Macs and building uh, software that you know would generate structures, kind of elaborating on this crazy icon idea and moving in its own directions. So so years go by, and then we get to the uh, Theater of Operations, which was probably one of the most ambitious installations in the first place, where sound carried almost the entire project. Because the first installation of this uh, happened in Cleveland in the historical Allen Theater. It's a beautifully restored uh, uh, theater. And I got, somehow I was just very fortunate to be able to work in the entire space and I was able to turn it into this sound installation. 32 unique sound sources, synchronized, playing in that space in this endless, endless loop. Uh, I also involved some of the leaflet designs that I've produced earlier, but aside from that, there's really nothing else except for the sound in the space. That, that was, was a, a good, good shot. shot. That, that was gold. Fire in the hole. Fire in the, in the hole. You guys got fire in the hole. We're ready, We're ready to, to rock. rock. That, that motherfucker is on fire. 
nice fight. fight. Did, Did you, you fucking, fucking see that? that? That's, That's fucking awesome. Definitely a point of value in that project to me was the process of making it, right? The idea of combing through uh, YouTube and and various uh, internet platforms for these helmet cam videos from the from soldiers in Iraq uh so sort of scavenging or harvesting or finding this evidence so i felt that there was a process of sweeping the the media landscape for bits and pieces of information that were then uh transcribed and then reenacted um, and reenacted by the whole sort of group of uh, my friends, some students, some uh, my whole family was part of this process of just uh, again verbalizing, voicing these um, bits and pieces of information and kind of creating a very uh, different kind of narrative, different uh, way of thinking about those events. Um, so it was, uh, it was a very, um, I want to say, intimate process because I spent a lot of time one-on-one with all the people who participated in this process for both the theater of operation and the White Star Cluster um, pieces. Um, and it, you do think differently about what these things mean when you actually allow, uh, that, uh, allow those words to pass through your, through your body. And... Uh, uh, this stuff was very difficult. There's uh, the texts that we were working with uh, were just really tragic in so many ways. Um, mm-hmm. So it was exhausting. And after doing the three versions of the Theater of Operation project, the very next project that I did was was the Empty Words uh, uh, kind of public space collaborative performance that uh, that sort of centered around uh, John Cage's empty words uh, texts that he had written specifically with the intent of demilitarizing English language. This was like one of those sort of lovely things that he would say that, about just breaking words into bits and pieces and 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 yeah. allowing the poetry of it to to sort of uh, come to the fore and. Had all the manipulative c- uh, capacity of the language to be completely uh, dismantled in that simple process, and so empty words was like a kind of a, a necessary point of release or like cleansing after spending you know years of working with this just really dark uh, uh, text. Did the reenactments change as you presented them across? multiple cities and countries and years. Yeah, they did. They did. And, uh, you know, each one necessarily had to be sort of rethought and, and repositioned because uh, the the original installation in the Allen Theater was so directly connected to the space, you know, it, the, whole, the, the, the whole sort of theatrical dimension of it emerge from the fact that I was working in that theatrical space. It's sort of conceptually all these elements very sort of resolve very well for me. Uh, the fact that uh, it was an empty theater, that, that the theater of operation is an actual military term, and, and that we were essentially becoming actors, reading the scripts that were echoes of the words spoken by soldiers in the in the actual theater of operations, like all these ideas sort of locked in very, uh, very well for me. But of course, you know, once I was out of that space and then trying to install the work in different environments, I did have to rethink how the elements related and, and how the ideas sort of uh, um, occupied different spaces. And then the last version of it, the white star cluster was actually completely different content too, because uh, it was, uh, uh, unlike the original theater of operations set, which, uh, like I said earlier, was a collection of these uh, bits and pieces of video from different places, different times, different events during the uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom, the White Star Cluster specifically focused on singular uh, helmet cam video that was shot uh, by a soldier inside of uh, a building 
uh, that had all these American soldiers in it, a building that was being shelled by American uh, soldiers in a different location. And, you know, soldiers died in the, in the process. And I just, just the insanity of that whole situation, the kind of absurdity was so intense that I felt that this was... Um, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to talk about this because really the video is completely uh, disturbing in you know in multiple ways, right? But the, and the fact that people do die in the process as you're watching this video and listening to these um, to this very dramatic, very um, uh, intense uh, sequence of events. Um, but it really was sort of quintessential to the to the whole. Uh, uh, to the whole war, to the absurdity of that whole um, yeah. historical um, event. And so, yeah, so I sort of built a, an entirely new set of it around a singular event. And so the relationship between the White Star Cluster and the Theater of Operation to me is that Theater of Operation collects these um, moments. White Star Cluster takes one moment and it just sort of stretches it uh, expands the time of it and and gives all these all this extra time for us to really dwell on these words you know yeah. so the the actual project is much longer than the video and these spaces are the spaces that i feel are the 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 important spaces that we need to inhabit to really think about what what went down? What went? What went on? You know, what transpired? What happened? Um, and and that you know that like I said, this was the point where I just thought, okay, I got to move on to the to the next thing. After that project was just, uh, it had to become right. something else. One of the challenges for me and something I actively sort of reach for and hope that is somehow part of what, of, of what I do is that it becomes in some capacity either um, a, a factor or uh, impetus for a conversation, for connection, for that sort of communal experience uh, that that experience takes place somewhere in that process, you know, and, and sometimes it happens literally in the process of making the thing. Other times it happens during the event where the thing is taking place. And sometimes it happens after the fact when people simply talk about what they just witnessed or what was part of their sort of experience and something uh, important happens uh, sort of as a, as a slow burn sort of situation after the fact on the work to work basis, it, um, it is always uh, a part of the task for me is trying to understand where those openings exist. What can I do as an artist to somehow allow that to happen or, or not just allow, but encourage or strategize about ways that that perhaps could occur. Yeah. So with, with the theater of operation and White Star Cluster, that micro community for me emerged in the process of kind of collectively experiencing these uh these words uh in the process of making the piece that definitely was part of that experience it also happened uh in the sort of presentations of the pieces uh, as people were sort of inhabiting these spaces but um so the empty words like i said was the the event that i constructed right after the um theater of operation series and in that event, I, w I was interested in creating a situation where that kind of collective recording process could be extended to what would typically be the audience for the performance event. So the way that that event was structured is that it was a, a long duration performance. It was like a nine hours all night from, uh, from dusk to dawn. It was, uh, one of the, it was the first festival that we had in, uh, in Minneapolis that uh, was taking place over the, this extended duration at night. And I was thinking about ways in which I can work sort of creatively with the fact that it's we're looking at nine hours of of material. Like, what do you do for nine hours, right? So, I <laughs> what I did what I did is I created this seek these loops that were one hour long, uh, and I set up a projection that 
would project these uh, empty words, the text, Cage's text, uh, word by word, right? So they're like word fragments. They don't mean anything. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and they would project them at the steady pace on the screen in front of which I set up this mini um, recording booth. Uh, it was a sort of a, a small structure that just had a, a one chair and a microphone. So people could come in and out of this booth and they would just be facing that screen and they would read the text, right? Uh, and people were like filing through this uh, system all night. And so, but it was set up on a one loop, uh, one hour loop, right? So after the first hour was over, the recording of the previous hour was played out in the space along with the second hour participants, right? And that loop repeated oh, wow. itself um, over each hour, slowly accumulating this chorus of words of, of people reading the you know the same words because they were timed with the with the sort of like massive teleprompter situation. Um, mm -hmm. So it was a very simple kind of uh, uh, structure of system that was put in place basically to, in my mind, extend that process of that collective experience to create a situation where people can simply enter in a kind of porous environment and become part of the work, but collectively um, recite these ostensibly emptied um, words from Cage, right? The, the thing that is demilitarized, that is uh, just the, the sort of pure poetry. So to me, it, it, it was a meaningful sort of uh, transition uh, to somehow not just for me to cleanse and to, to kind of move away from this uh, material, but also to just create a, a kind of a platform for uh, a much more open and inclusive experience that could sort of operate in a very diffused and like i said porous f fashion and it was a really important project for me because from that moment on i ended up working on a number of these large-scale kind of performative installation event uh, projects that one way or the other always involve some sort of sonic component but uh, really focused on how to create these porous um uh places where these communal experiences take can, can take place are those the ones that you're doing with uh anisha arts yeah uh pramila vasudevan who is uh, a, f a former student of mine mm. she's uh, an amazing artist and uh, a, a classically trained indian dancer who's uh kind of developed her own language uh and always been interested in involving technology and and thinking about audience participation etc cetera, etc cetera. and so i always sort of um followed up uh with her work you know after she graduated and we always would have a cup of coffee afterwards and uh you know discuss the 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 work and at some point she said well peter maybe we should have this cup of coffee before uh the work happens so she asked <laughs> if i would be interested in directing her next dance uh performance and the first project that we worked on was called inhabit and it was another one of those durational performances so it was a, a nine hour long uh, event that um, uh, took a very interesting form of these uh, looped uh, sequences that were nested inside of each other and uh, it was a it was an it was an amazing experience for me and we ended up uh, collaborating on a number of projects since uh uh, it seems that one gets bigger than the other. And um, the <laughs> last project that we worked on called Census uh, uh, last year, uh, at some point reached uh, nearly 100 uh, performers. Uh, and it's it's fascinating to see how, to me, this is uh, only in a few small details different from uh this these micro communities emerging through some early work on the internet or even further back through the the mail art it, it, that idea of making connections between not just ideas but people is always yeah. there and it sort of carries and mutates it changes its form and uh in recent years it had been uh, about these kind of communal experiences that are some performative on one end but participatory in other ways 
I use the word porous a lot because uh, I really do feel that um, that's part of my um, vocabulary in some ways, or, or like part of the skill as an artist uh, is being able to leave those openings, right, where or people infiltrate or inhabit the uh, the ideas and takes ownership of the work, right? Like, what are the strategies or structures that you can set up that make this possible so that not only people can just uh you know make a few choices or make a few decisions but how how do you set it up in a way where those decisions are the meaning generating or meaning carrying uh moments devices right and and how do you allow that ownership to uh to be transferred to the uh, to the you know person who typically referred to as an audience uh, would be somebody kind of on the other side of the work how do you make that boundary so fuzzy and porous that it's hard to tell whether what you're looking at is a performer or a member of the audience and how do you yourself reconcile whether you are just watching something happening or whether you're actually part of it happening and i'm very interested in those um those uh nuances i guess or these these mm, oblique ways in which these definitions take place or lose shape in all of these performance projects. What is the tool selection like? Is it that your process really builds the instrument or do you find that the instrument builds the process or, you know, cause you trade and sell a lot of pieces off. <laughs> it seems like you'll have these, these little moments where it's like, cool. All right. Half of this rack just needs to go. And that's happening. It's true. But I, I guess that, I mean, specifically uh, thinking about the, the modular environment, that seems to be part of the beauty of this to me anyway, um, that there is a kind of fluidity about, about it. And it, it just makes absolute total sense in my in my head that that would be the platform or the instrument that I would find myself sort of arriving at, uh, coming from the strictly digital uh, kind of programmatic work through Max and building these mini networks of functionalities um, uh, was very much a, a point of interest for me and you can easily make a, a transition from that to the modular environment essentially in, in like physical form um, creating a, a, an, a tactile equivalent of that so it it definitely became uh, a kind of a natural sequence or natural progression for me and in a way uh, I am not sure if I can really answer your question about what which builds what you know what pres- mm. what is it an instrument that that sort of establishes the the direction or is it the direction that uh, calls for a particular instrument because I don't I mean even though I use that term instrument I don't really think about the modular thing as an instrument <laughs> per mm. se I I use that term often when describing the thing but really to me it's a it, it's like a it's an environment really it's a platform it's a um it's a it's like a god what is it it's a studio basically it's a whole studio just in two cases and i and i think uh its ability to be both the thing that produces the sonic information to make sounds but it's also the thing that creates the structures it also is the thing that creates this uh, organic uh, uh, fluctuation. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's amazing though because uh, I almost don't record sound at all these days because uh, so much of the modular ethos and its its properties today is to me about being in the moment with the within that environment that it it sort of defeats the purpose. I send you a folder of the of these what I call studio notes that are just these captures of something that's happening at some point in the studio, and this this is the last shred of my my desire in somehow capturing or recording 
this musical content. Um, and I'm not really sure why I'm doing this. I'm doing this, um, oh, maybe as a way, just the same way that I would be making entries in my sketchbook, just writing down random phrases or interesting words or some kind of structure or maybe an image. Mm. So I think that these no, these studio note recordings are like that. And in the in the context of the sound, those would be the things that I might uh, be more inclined to try to move in that direction again or try not replicate because that's not possible, uh, at least for me. I can't, I don't work with the module in that way. So then when you're performing with the modular, like something like Geophone, is that then half improvisational? Is it all improvisational? Is it all compositional? My gut response would be to say, yeah, it's improvisational because it's easy for us to understand that idea in the context of music, right? Uh, people improvise. Right. Uh, and that's one way to be as a, as a musician. But, uh, but because the modular facilitates, uh, again, not just particular timbres or, or sound qualities, but also structures and behaviors, those you you know those behaviors are built in the process of constructing the instrument in that particular uh, situation in that in that particular context, and so it already essentially comes uh, the the structural and therefore perhaps compositional uh, forms are part of that process. So. To me, you know, I could say that I improvise because it would be an easy answer, but I don't think I'm truly improvising because chunks of what happens in that sonic environment had been constructed or predetermined because I just constructed them in that particular fashion, you know. But but with Geophone, it was absolutely the situation where it was built on the spot and then performed right right there, despite the crazy weather that we've encountered yeah the pictures seemed wild so it was, it was supposed to be a two evening event and essentially for the first evening we were unable to perform because the weather was just like cataclysmic my <laughs> my initial setup with a tent and everything was completely obliterated on the first day of the performance it was I, I can't believe that none of the equipment was damaged because if you looked at what was happening, it was just uh, incredible. I mean, just a complete nightmare. But somehow uh, we were able to retool for, on the next day and, you know, s s sort of delivered the project, which um, in a way is, is, I mean, there's something new to me about it. And then it's something that feels like a, it's a very much a, a labor camp project because one of the things about labor camp was from the get-go for me was this very just careful examination of history and so as you earlier pointed out there's always there always seems to be some textual uh, component involved there's some text whether it's poetry or or historical documents or whatever and it's absolutely true it's it the text part of almost all labor camp output is 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 there because of the fact that for me there was uh this idea of working with sound and history as material uh was almost synonymous and there is mm. this um there's this sort of uh thinking about uh memory and history as sound um and i i, I sometimes bring this up because uh it was one of those realizations or moments for me where uh, it sort of made sense and, and allowed me to pursue working with sound and uh, with, with some degree of confidence. And it was just thinking about the, like the mechanics of sound, the idea of when we actually hear the sound, it's already happened. You know, the actual, say, if you think of uh, striking a drum or a key on the, on the keyboard, by the time we hear it, the act is already over it already happened and i and i think about a parallel with history in a way that something happens in the past and it reverberates through time uh and stays with us even today and i i like thinking about the, that relationship i think about the way that the particles in the air carry the sound and visually i think about 
crowd of people and the way that the energy is being passed from one uh, body to another. And somehow these ideas just sort of coalesce or uh, congeal in my head. And and there is a, a very suddenly very organic sense of time and, and history. Mm. And so I always were was drawn to thinking about sound and I guess text or as a direct connection to particular moments um, in history in all the sort of labor camp work. And I, I was always drawn to these, what I call extreme historical phenomena, because they are like the equivalence of that hit on the, on the skin of the, of the drum. Something really extreme is hap- happens in history, in time, uh, and it continues to reverberate with us. That relationship about uh, uh, between time, history, and sound is very palpable to me. And all of these ideas are absolutely present in Geophone. Uh, and they're present in a, comp- a couple of ways. The first, uh, the first event had... So it had 20 speakers buried in the ground, uh, and every other speaker played uh, different content. I was, you know, making the music for half of them, and the other half was playing this uh, endless sonic collage of sounds from protests and public unrests uh, throughout history, I, from different place, places geographically and different moments in time, and so. If you lay down, you could hear the, you know, the voices of people chanting. You could hear the, the sort of sonic artifacts of struggle in in public spaces, coming from underground. And to me, it was especially evocative because of my experiences uh, of working on these archaeological digs. Because I do think of the time as sort of you know, vertically buried in the, uh, in the earth, like literally taking mm-hmm. layers of, of ground is moving back in time. You know, that's, I've experienced this through that process and really think of it in that, in that way. So to, to be able to actually hear the past, so to speak, uh, connect in connecting with it, with, with us and in this very, I think kind of beautiful, simple gesture of just laying down on and putting your head to the ground was uh, uh, like the maybe the core idea of the of the geophone. Like you said earlier, there isn't anything that's intentionally political. But the very act of focusing on like basic human experience mm. and the ways that we connect to each other is inherently political, you know, in and of itself. It is an act. Yeah. And uh, the protest banners, one of the things that strikes me is their, uh, their impermanence, but that the, the words are resonant for all of time. Yeah, there. It's a strange material. I, I'm using this. Uh, I have this massive roll of this uh, kind of synthetic material that's uh, I'm told used for um, making disposable surgical gowns out of, and I'm able to print on it with acrylic or latex uh, paint. And so these things are actually pretty durable. Um, uh, not that not that that's a hugely important factor, but because I do think of these as very much ephemeral and and disposable, and and in many ways, you know, they get abandoned, and I you know I don't know where most of these uh, items are at this point because I I don't make them for me. Um, so the banners are a kind of a fascinating phenomenon to me because um, it's, I first built this massive contraption. Um, for this exhibition at the soap factory and i printed uh, this the contraption came with a few texts that i that i had written 
about them, and this is ostensibly uh, uh, kind of addressing the the one percent situation and the kind of economic the gross economic uh, this disparities. So this was opening in uh, in November of 2015, I believe, and uh, literally two days after the opening, uh, we had another incident of um, police uh, shooting of uh, Jamar Clark in this case in in mm. in Twin Cities, and I was sitting on my couch looking at my ipad browsing the facebook feed and reading the news about this and you know just like like we do these days boiling over uh what was going on and 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 then somebody started the thread that there was a demonstration being organized that afternoon in um in the in minneapolis and i thought to myself wait a minute i have this insane printing apparatus right now set up in this gallery so without thinking twice i just typed right in the in the facebook i said so um i included a photo of that showed the the setup in the gallery i said i have this thing uh set up right now i'm gonna go to the gallery right now and you guys post back to this thread what you want the banners to say and i'll just print them and then you can come to the soul factory pick them up before the protest right Oh, yeah. And I also said, you know, if anybody wants to come in and help, we can get this done faster. Feel free. I told them where the, where to go. And and by the time I made it to the soap factory, there was already a couple of people there who were, showed up to help. And already content started pouring in to, um, to, for us to print. And I spent the entire day, we spent the entire day printing. And people started coming and picking these things up. And... And that was that, and um, and then the images, of course, started feeding back on that Facebook uh, post of the banners already out there somewhere. And you know, speaking of learning experiences, this was absolutely one of those moments <laughs> where I was thinking, "Oh my God!" So for for now, decades of um, trying to work as a as an artist and trying to understand the relationship between what we do um and and maybe struggling for relevance to you know because we often do we think about what happens in the gallery and we kind of second guess whether or not this means anything or whether this could at all have any kind of effect and especially when it comes to these like really dramatic uh critical points in 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 our social landscape but this was the moment where the artwork itself had sort of born this other thing, this different way of being. It resonated and began to function in a in a wholly sort of different way. And in this case, as it turns out, in a very important way, because these things made a difference. These objects somehow facilitate, facilitated something important for me. I was able to, as an artist, contribute in what I thought was a, a constructive way to uh, to the situation that is just so complex, right? As yeah. a as a white guy, um, I was made very aware of the complicated uh, implications of even my body being part of a demonstration against police brutality uh, that is focused on, on, on black bodies. And I had this conversation with uh, students in, during that same time, and uh, uh, one of the uh, women in class said, well, you know, it's a little strange uh, when you're in, a, in a, at the demonstration and you're a woman of color. I look, I look around and there's white men with their hands up chanting, hands up, don't shoot. There's something, there's like a strange uh, problem there. And she also said that, you know, white people always have a way of making it about themselves. And these, these things really stayed with me for... Uh, for a long time, and it was uh, really important yeah. that we all think about how how we figure into this. Um, and so, this moment with the with the banners was a kind of a, a, an amazing realization for me because I felt that there was uh, a, a something cracked just a little bit, uh, just enough for me to be able to actually function in a constructive way as an ally, as somebody who. Um, 
does not take up that space and does not make it about themselves because in the end the whole point of it was that that none of these words were my words i simply gave them the form that allowed them to resonate in a maybe slightly more amplified fashion With every one of these conversations, I do like to turn to uh, Monom and to the Lions Forum and the work uh, that Brian Kelly and Trent have all done. You're definitely uh, someone who's been participative in it for a long time. And um, so I'd love to just get your kind of experience working with Monom. How did you start integrating it in to your work? And yeah, being a part of that community. Yeah, interesting. I mean, of course, the the Lions Forum and the Brian and Kelly's ability to actually become this sort of community building um, focal point is 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 really uh, humbling and 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 inspiring. But speaking of monoms specifically, the the objects and the and the operation, um, it's it's kind of interesting. I I think the first time I saw the monom grid. Um, I just couldn't afford it. It was too expensive. Um, I was absolutely attracted to the the whole concept, the idea of the sort of a blank slate, uh, but a tactile uh, engagement with Mac's environment was super attractive. And I guess I I myself was experimenting with some um, installation or interactive uh, physical environments interacting with the uh, with the digital. Uh, platforms and so that seemed perfectly sort of situated exactly in the middle of that of that space but like I said it was just too much it was too much money (laughs) and I didn't have that money and so I just had to like give up on this and uh, but I became a lurker at the early (laughs) Monum forum when that um, when that uh, materialized and I think I was able to buy the grid. I don't know what year, uh, to be honest, but I it was one of the one of the grants at some somewhere along the way that uh, allowed me to actually splurge and and you know buy a, a, a more expensive piece of equipment. And um, and it, I mean, I think it's true for everybody. It, it really does change uh, change the mindset in a in a very um, constructive way. In that it seamlessly works itself into your individual uh, practice, into your individual uh, set of sensibilities is where the genius of it really lies. And of course, it goes further into the arc and the now the entire environment that uh, can just continues to um, expand further and further. Yeah. You know, I've been talking about leaving uh, openings for people to uh, either enter or take ownership of, you know, whatever it is that I'm I'm trying to put together. And so the monom uh, interfaces, I guess I'm thinking specifically of the grid and the and the arc are are in and of the, of themselves these types of openings that um, make that mm. point of taking ownership so effortless and and organic and very natural. And you know that's uh, that's a lot to say for. Uh, a single object and it takes some uh real um inspired uh care it's so much more right it's not just the object it's the it's what it does it's how it does uh how it does it what we do with it um it's uh it's it's just an amazing opening for all these ideas that the community then can bring to to fore so The sense of community is so um, uh, just sincere and 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 profound in a way that you know you really do feel that that really deep uh, kinship and connection emerging even with people who you've never met personally. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of astounding. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sound and Process with Peter Shahalski. 
All the music featured in this episode are his own compositions, so for more of Peter's work, please visit him at labourcamp.org or follow him on Instagram at labourcamp. To learn more about lines, visit LLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLLL